Welcome back to the Black Letter Podcast. We set out to create an entertaining and exciting podcast about law and business, and I think we've done it. Black Letter, the name, comes from the Gothic typeset that was originally used in the Gutenberg Press. Over time, Black Letter became the only font that English law books were printed in. Everything else was printed in regular type. It made it harder for kind of the common person to understand what the English law books said. Black Letter came to represent something that was law, that was set in stone, that was sort of old and a well-settled fundamental principle of law. We're here to demystify Black Letter law. We're here to demystify things that happen in business and law and where those two meet. And I hope you have fun listening. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Black Letter Podcast. Today, I've got Christina Buweri from Reston Limousine, the CEO, founder, and sole shareholder. She grew the company from five cars, five limousines, five whatever they are, transportation vehicles, to more than 250 vehicles. So it's an entrepreneurial success story. Since that time, she's been in the Washingtonian's Power 100 and a variety of other accolades and awards. But what's really neat, and we'll talk about this too, is the things she's done in the community and how she, she's supporting women and entrepreneurship locally and nationally. And I'm going to ask Christina some, maybe some tough questions, uh, or maybe she'll just tell me about how she's dealt with COVID. Because you can imagine her business, I think, I would guess, like a lot of service industry businesses that rely on human beings being in places, probably hurt, right? Because it's transportation and wine tours and uh, DC Metro. So Christina, thank you for joining us. Great to have you. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to your show. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, you know, I guess I'll start with the pandemic and how that's affected us. It was a very tough time a year ago. I could not imagine how I was going to survive and keep my business in place. After 30 years of building my company, I literally thought there was nothing I would be able to do. And it was very sad. I had 450 employees. I had to lay off 300. Wow. And then 300. 300. I, we were able to get the PPP loan, which led me to believe that I wasn't going out of business. And now I just had to restructure, downsize, and right size the company. And we're very blessed because we are not a traditional limousine company. We're more of a bus company. We do have sedans, limousines, and vans, but we, our bread and butter was always the buses. And so when 80% of my clients basically shut me down, the other 20% actually ordered more equipment so that they could provide social distancing. So very blessed that we were able to grow in, in other areas. Then we also pivoted. We pivoted into food delivery. We deliver food for this great concept called Din Din. And that's a, a business that combines unemployed chefs with commercial kitchens to create beautiful food. And then we deliver it to the consumer. And that's been going great. Okay. Love that. And then we also pivoted into organ transplant transportation. Wow. And so are transporting COVID positive patients to quarantine. And so those three things uh, kept us alive this year. And I'm, I'm happy to say things are getting better every single day. So Christina, that's really interesting. So tell me, you know, you're a limousine company and you were taking people on wine tours and moving people from point A to point B. 
Uh, and now all of a sudden this year, you're back in business or you're in business again and ramping up, but with all of these new sectors. So first, do you think these things are going to survive past COVID as things that you do now, maybe not transporting patients to quarantine, but the organ transplants and the din-din thing? And how did you find these things? How as an entrepreneur, as somebody, a business owner, how did you figure out, okay, I've got a, you're worried you were going to close, but then you flexed struggled through and found new sectors. How did you do that? What was your it was process? All through, it was all through uh, personal relationships and networking. So the Dindin opportunity came to me from someone I know through networking who just wanted me to be on his advisory board. And so I gave him an hour of my time and we were, and I was listening to the concept and I said, how are you going to deliver the food? He says, we haven't figured that out yet, uh, but we think we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And I said, okay, well, then I started thinking about it for a few days and I called him back up and I said, hey, wait a minute, I can deliver that food. And it wasn't in his mind or my mind when we first had our conversation. It just came to me later and it's been working out great and we will continue to do that. And his business is thriving and growing and he plans to take it national. So that's fantastic. The organ transplantation business, we dabbled in it here and there and just started to okay. call everyone we knew that did it and offer up our services, lower our rates a little bit, and we've been able to grow that uh, substantially. So yes, both of those are here to stay. That's fantastic. And the quarantine transport, how does that work? I'm just curious, probably more personally than from a business perspective, but where are the these people coming from that you have to... Because when, when I think of quarantine at our firm, we're like, hey, somebody had COVID at the, the office, stay home, you're quarantined. But you're moving people in your cars. And so I'm curious as to what protective measures you're taking and what is that business? So basically we have a contract with a city and okay. they tell us where to pick someone up and then where to take them. Uh, we retrofitted one of our vans. Actually, we, we actually put plastic shields in a lot of our vehicles. So there's a plastic shield divider between the driver and the customer. And the customer gotcha. sits in the back row of the van and the customer, the, the paying client, is giving us medical-grade PPE for our driver and our detailer. And we already purchased all the equipment to sanitize our, our vehicles. So we are actually sanitizing our vehicles every single day with electrostatic cleansers. And in between runs, the drivers sanitize everything as well. You know, I'm very, very blessed to say that out of my 450 employees, only four of them ever contracted the virus. And none wow. of them on the job and nobody passed away. So we're very proud of that. And by the way, that, that one segment has pretty much gone down to zero. Wow. Well, so, so I guess it's good from a national healthcare perspective that it's gone to zero. So about the PPE and the sanitation of the vehicles and the plastic shields, I travel a good bit. And even recently I've been traveling more because I'm vaccinated and we have to go places. Do you feel like these measures are here to stay? Are we going to be wiping down our armrests for the next 10 years, face masks? Or is this, you know, another year or two? I mean, what, what is your feeling? I know nobody knows, but. I think that a lot of these programs are here to stay. And, I, and the reason why I say that is because if you look at the regular flu season, right. I heard down 97%. Yeah. So I think it's a good thing if everyone is way more careful you know, washes their hands, sanitizes everything. I'm sure my customers are going to want me to do it forever. And uh, the only thing I hope, I hope that we don't have to wear face masks forever. Right. 
to me would really cramp my lifestyle. But everything else I think is here to stay, you know, extra cleaning protocols, plastic shields, and just an overall sense of comfort that, you know, people are protected. Yeah, the face masks kind of make everybody look like they're robbing a bank. So I kind of feel the same way. Every time I see these, you know, so even with a blue or black face mask, but there's so many people and, you know, you can only see their eyes. So it's almost like, uh, I don't know, it just, it makes the world seem like a more shifty place to me a little bit. So I, I agree with you. I hope that goes away. But what about asking your employees or requiring them to get vaccinated? Have you had any thought about that or conversation? Yes, we have. In fact, um, I'm on a hospital board. Okay. And the CEO of the hospital is not requiring their employees to get vaccinated. And so I'm taking the same point of view. I'm not going to require anyone to do it. I'm going to, you know, highly recommend that they do it. There are some of our customers that are going to require it. So for employees that don't want to get the vaccine, they will not be able to work for certain customers. Gotcha. Because there are some random reactions to the vaccine. Sure. And, and so there's a lot of liability there as an employer. If you force people to do it, then they get sick. I'm following the lead of the CEO of the hospital and I'm not going to require it. Just highly recommend. Gotcha. We kind of took the middle ground and we've been advising people for whatever it's worth. We're giving our employees a bonus uh, if they get the vaccine and we're giving them the day off to get the shot and then the day after the shot. So, you know, not counting it against their leave. So we're trying to do a little bit just short of requiring it. But it's interesting because I talked to another attorney about it this morning and the federal government has never, there's no such claim as an employer made a workplace more safe. Um, it would be hard to bring an employment claim if an employer required a vaccine. But I think Rutgers University and Georgetown University, for example, just, uh, I think last week said they require all their employees and students to get a vaccine before they come back. So they're going to have the fight and pay for it before anybody else does. So I think that's kind of you know maybe an upside and see what happens there. It happened to come up in my conversations this morning and we'll have a blog on it, which I'm, I'll share with you because uh, we're, we're working through the various legal ramifications because it's an EUA, an emergency use, as opposed to a, uh, an actual authorized vaccine, which changes the legal liability a little bit. Tell me about how you started Rest in Limousine and grew it from five to 250 and how long that took. I mean, to me, I read your story, of course, and I think we've met before, but I don't know the like, what was the grit and like, what was that thing that made it successful? Because so many people will like say, hey, I want to build a business or I want to get a, you know, I'm going to start with one car, one moving van and start a company. And it doesn't work all the time. Obviously, not everybody grows and you grew a lot. So what is that secret sauce? You know, I like to say I was at the right place at the right time because I was at the Reston Town Center in the early 90s. And not only did I benefit from all the dot-coms that were growing like crazy in those days, I benefited also from having a contract with the Hyatt Regency Reston, who fed me a lot of work. And and then one day, this guy just knocked, knocked on the door to the office and said, do you guys want to bid on a government contract? And I said, well, what's that? He said, oh, well, my wife works across the street at U.S. Geological Survey in Reston, and they run two vans back and forth all day long into D.C. And I said, sure. So I I took the proposal, and I looked at it, and I just thought it was overwhelming. And I didn't know how I was going to you know, figure it out. But I figured it out, and I won that contract. And so then I thought, well, 
if there's a contract for USGS, there have to be other government contracts. And so I started researching them and figured out that every single government agency has an inner city bus route connecting their buildings. And so their employees can get to meetings and other offices. They can get to the office from the metro. And I just started bidding on these. And for the next five years, I won every single contract I bid wow. in Washington. In the right place at the right time. And then, you know, being able to expand on that opportunity. So that between that and the dot-coms, and for example, Ted Leonsis was our client. And we drove him to work every day for four years. And then he got his own car and driver. That's an example of the type of business that was around in the 90s. And so we went from zero to five million in revenue without any problems. And then we lost our small business, uh, you know, status. Right. So then we had to diversify into um, universities and hospitals. And it was at that time that we decided my husband would stay home with the five kids and that I would run the business. The second 10 years of our, of our business, I grew it to 17 million and asked for a divorce, bought them out. And then the third decade, I grew it to $30 million. So Christina, fantastic. So the, so the government contracts piece, right place, right time, but also, you know, you took the initiative. And I think a lot of businesses don't always take the initiative. You won the government contract, but to me, it sounds like you're like, well, this seems like a good opportunity. Let me take that and open that book wider. Yes. I'm not sure we're government contractors too. And, and we're government contractors because we've been representing them for 20 years. And about eight years ago, we're like, we should start bidding on some of these. So we're counsel to NIH and DHS and we do their legal, some legal stuff. But it was the same thing. It was opening that book. And I think a lot of people don't do that. They just kind of look and say, well, I got this opportunity. Here's the money now. So I think that's, that's really key to your story. So is there anything kind of, I know you do a lot of charitable works. You sit on some boards. Is that an important part of your business and an important part of your network? Or how does that play into what you do? So absolutely. The first 10 years, as I said, we were very, very busy, growing quickly. But at the end of those 10 years, 9-11 happened and it got very slow and we plateaued. We didn't grow for five years. And it was then that I started networking because the phones literally were not ringing. Right. And I thought, let me get out there and drum up some business. So I joined a couple of chambers. I joined the committee for Dulles and volunteered my time to help those organizations. And that meant pretty much either volunteering on the membership committee or volunteering on the annual gala and helping them raise money through silent auctions. And soon I was recognized as sort of a worker bee, you know, kind of a doer, a doer in the group. And I was offered board seats. And one board seat sort of left, led to another. And so today I'm on 10 boards of directors. And wow. it's really that board level networking that has brought me the opportunities that have allowed my business to grow and allowed me to grow personally as well. And during that time, I also uh, joined a mastermind, a business book club, and I've joined an organization called Vistage. Okay. Vistage is a CEO membership organization where you take a day off from work every month and you go to an offsite retreat with 18 CEOs. And you not only have a great speaker in the morning, but you solve each other's business problems in the afternoon. So I did a ton of learning in Vistage and would say, without a doubt, it was the single best decision I ever made Wow! in my career was joining that group because it was there that I learned how to scale my business. It was there that I learned how to do proper you know, performance evaluations and 24 month rolling forecasts and I could just go on and on and on. It was there that I really 
was educated because I'm a political science major running a business. And I, at some point, I needed some serious technical education and help. And that's where I got it. I feel you. Yeah, I was an English theater major. Um, <laughs> and now I'm running a law firm. And uh, I felt those days. I, I went back to school and got an MBA, but I love the Vistage thing. I'm actually, I, I've been approached by them before and I've always been kind of like, well, I don't know. It seems like a time commitment and money. And I just didn't know if there was value in it, but it's great to hear that from you. And I think I'll circle back and look at it again, maybe, because it does sound like you got real value out of it. Do you have a few things that a lawyer or a business person could take away our listeners? And they're a diverse group, but pretty much business focused. That's why they're listening, that they could take away from your experience, that they could gain from your life. Sure. I mean, I think my very first tip would be to always uh, uh, schedule time for networking because it was really through networking that I learned the most about how to improve myself. It was through networking that I made contacts that led me to bigger and better contracts and opportunities for my business. And today I can say I'm really proud of my network. My network is unbelievable. And I've put 20 years into it. So I have an amazing network. And one thing I love to do is connect people. I love to connect people in my network to each other. Uh, That has been a huge part of my success. The second thing would definitely be to join a peer group. There's many out there. There's entrepreneurs organization. There's young presidents organization. There's there's probably 20 or 30 different peer groups. And it's like having an advisory board for your business. And for me, that was Vistage. And that was the single best decision I ever made uh, with all the learning that I was able to do there. And learning from the other CEOs was key. And then the third tip really would be to be a lifelong learner. Always try and improve yourself and you know, read business books and maybe join a business book club where you talk to other people about what, what they've seen. because. I just have this approach to life that I know nothing and that I always want to improve myself. And that has really served me well. So if I could sum it up then, your the three things would be um, one, make the time and then execute on it yes. uh, for networking. And then the third thing yes. was always be personally growing, be a learner, get yes. the books about your business, I guess, that are relevant to you. So I love that. So make the time to network, do the networking and join a peer group and be a lifelong learner. Yes. That's the first time I've heard that uh, the peer group and making time for networking as one of the three most important things. And I love that because that's a, a core piece of your business. And we hear so many things and sometimes they're similar, but this is really like you have taken a, a, a really cool and interesting and unique approach to what's important. And it's good to know. And I, I guess I have to say that Oh, I guess I need to be part of your network now because it sounds like you're the, the, the matron of networking. So anything else, Christina, that you have for the good of the, good of the listeners or good of the people? I mean, if, you're, if you want advice for um, business owners, you know, I would say that you know, owning a business is wonderful, but there are many highs and there are many lows and you have to take risk. I look back at my 30 years and I took a lot of risk. Some of it worked out, some of it didn't work out. But if you don't take the risk and take risks, you really can't grow. And so you have to be pretty strong to be able to push yourself out of your comfort zone and take risk. But when you do that, it can pay off big dividends. Gotcha. So we'll wrap that as number four around everything is taking, take the risk. 
you know, make the leap. I, I, I've heard that something like that, an entrepreneur. I'm on the, my school, Washington and Lee University has an entrepreneurship program and I'm on their advisory board. And that's, there's a whole sec- session every year dedicated to making the leap, which is like that jumping off a cliff and taking a huge risk, like setting aside your, whatever you're doing that's comfortable and becoming uncomfortable. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, Christina, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward to having you in my network. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you listeners and to those few who view us on YouTube. Thank you for watching us too. Download us wherever you get your podcasts at the Apple iTunes store or Google Play. And we'll see you next time on the Black Letter Podcast. That's all for today's episode of Black Letter. Thanks again for listening. Join us next time when we talk about more Black Letter issues in creative ways. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play so you never miss an episode. And to catch us on video, check out our website at blackletterstudios.com.